We have an exciting partnership to announce before we get into today's Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt has been asked to join Reads Across America Radio, a 24-7 internet radio station where you can listen to veteran stories 24-7. Uh, you can find that on the iHeartRadio app. You can also find it on their website, readsacrossamerica.org. The Scuttlebutt will be featured Friday nights at 9 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. If you don't know anything about Reads Across America, they're an incredible organization, all dedicated to honoring veterans uh, and, and those who uh, gave all in service to our country. Check out the Scuttlebutt on their radio station and all the other programs that they have on their 24-7 radio station, again, on iHeartRadio app or readsacrossamerica.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can check out everything that we have going on with the Veterans Breakfast Club on our website at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Org. Today's episode of The Scuttlebutt, I'm very excited for. Uh, I have sort of like a passion, maybe just like a bit of a, a small geek part of me that loves the like thriller genre, you know, the Jack Ryans, the Jack Bowers, the Mitch Rapp, Ethan Hunt, James Bond. I just sort of like love the genre. Well, I was able to get the author M.P. Woodward to come on and join me on The Scuttlebutt and talk about his Handler series and the characters that he have, uh, John and Meredith Dale. They are in fact... Uh, actually divorced uh, in his series. And though John is sort of the boots on the ground, Meredith works for the CIA. It's a it's a really incredible series. First one being The Handler uh, and the book that recently just released last week called Dead Drop. Um, MP and I had a great time talking. He is a formal Naval Intelligence officer from back in the 90s. We get into his service, uh, sort of what he learned through his time in the service and has helped him develop this world uh, that he's creating with the Handler series. Uh, and we dive into the Handler. We dive into these two characters, you know, what makes them tick, how he developed them, um, and also into uh, the most recent book, Dead Drop, uh, which again, I can't be more excited for. I hope you check out MP Woodward on his website, mpwoodward.com, and you can also get his books anywhere books are sold. I uh, hope you enjoy this episode, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And please reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts, suggestions, comments. Always interested to hear your ideas on maybe upcoming future scuttlebutts. Uh, thank you again for being a part of our audience here uh, with this podcast, and I hope you enjoy the show. Joining me here today on the Scuttlebutt is uh, MP Woodward. Uh, MP, you are a Navy veteran and also the author of the Handler series, The Handler and Dead Drop. Uh, which recently just released. So excited to have you join me here on the Scuttlebutt. Uh, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Welcome to the program. Hey, Sean. Thank you so much. Yeah, my name's uh, M.P. Woodward. Uh, as you mentioned, I was, uh, I'm was i a Navy veteran. I was a Naval Intelligence Officer for, uh, for seven years, and uh, great time helped inform some of the characters in the book, and uh, I hope everybody enjoys reading it. Definitely. Uh, you know, we want to get sort of into that, how, how your Navy career has sort of influenced these characters and influenced the book and the writing. Uh, but let's dive back a bit in, into your past here and say, why did you choose Navy and when did you enlist? Ah, well, um, I, as a kid, I lived near uh, Coronado, California, which is a massive hub for the Navy, in particular aviation and the SEALs. And uh, as well as Marines over at the amphibase, base, et cetera. And so I was sort of surrounded by by all this. And I was I was very impressed with um, the guys I would see around town, uh, the airplanes I saw overhead, the seals running down the beach with the rubber boats, you know, held high over their their shoulders, all these exercises happening. And um, I was also super interested in history. I was as a kid, maybe unusually 
was a little bit um, a little bit fascinated by World War II and what had happened there, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the Pacific. And so all those things added up to a strong interest in the Navy. Um, I ended up uh, wanting to become an officer and um, I got a scholarship from the Navy, an, an ROTC scholarship for a full ride. And at the time I needed, to, I certainly needed a way, uh, a way to pay for college. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I did a ROTC scholarship and um, when I graduated, they uh, they made me an intelligence officer, and the rest is uh, is is very minor history. Let's say. Did you uh, were you from a military family? Was it you know being in that area? There was a lot of military around, so it wasn't foreign then. No, I wasn't from a military family in particular. Though my great grandfather fought in the Civil War uh, on the Union side. Wow. Um, I I think um, I had a big brother who was who was kind of interested in it, but mm -hmm. most of it was homegrown and um, kind of a fascination with history, which I which I still have. What year did you go in? Uh, I I was commissioned in 1990 and mm -hmm. got out right around 1998. Okay, so it's sort of like sort of a peacetime era, like decade, uh, or you know, sort of beginning. Well, that's. Yeah, and that's um that the paradox is the I entered really really you sort of I sort of entered in 1986 because as a scholarship mm -hmm. um, kid you know you come in as a midshipman and you're dealing with that during school and then every summer you're going on a um, midshipman summer cruise as they call it and um, you know between 1986 and 1990 when I was in school. That was very much the height of the of the Cold War. And then, mm -hmm. of course, um, the wall falls in 1989. And so I graduated into really um, what became Desert Storm um, pretty quickly. Right. And so the cool thing is I got to see uh, I was commissioned and um, and done with intelligence school uh, as Desert Storm was happening. So in a in an early unit contributing absolutely nothing but learning but learning plenty. Mm -hmm. um, and getting to see that happening. Uh, and then um, later in the in the kind of the mid 90s, I was with the US Indo-Pacific Command. And oddly enough, at that time, uh, most people don't really remember this, but um, China was making a lot of noise about Taiwan mm -hmm. and was was lobbing silkworm missiles across the Taiwan Strait. I happened to be on a command ship um, as an intelligence officer for for US PACOM. And, which is what it was called at the time. And uh, they, the Blue Ridge was right there in the Taiwan Strait. And we were, you know, trying to do the, uh, the show of force. We also had, mm -hmm. um, uh, at the time, I think it was Kim Il-sung um, was making a lot of trouble with nuclear weapons. And so mm -hmm. uh, I was in a battle group that was that was sent to Seoul and, and Japan, et cetera. So it was a peacetime Navy, but it was very, and it was very much a show the flag peacekeeping uh, time. You know, as we were just getting into right. really commercial globalization in a big way. Did you? You said they they kind of put you in intelligence, so that wasn't something that you chose. Um, it was something I actually injured myself uh, my <laughs> senior year um, <laughs> playing rugby of all things, and um, for a while there, it was it was it was uh, a risk as to whether I would get um, commissioned as all at all. And um, my command, the commanding officer of my unit. Um, petitioned the Navy and, and suggested several different communities. The top of the list for me was, I had wanted to be a pilot. The top of the list for me ended up being intelligence because I thought it'd be interesting. And then I run and then the Navy 
um, did do that and um, kept me in, which was great. Um, ironically, at the time, um, intelligence officers went to flight school first. So, oh. <laughs> you know, uh, as, as soon as I got commissioned, they shipped me off to Pensacola and I went through um, the Naval Flight Officer uh, program up to a certain point. You did a curriculum there for about, oh, about a year or so, just to kind of um, imbue you with a sense of the strike portion of the Navy, which mm -hmm. is what, and power projection, which is what you end up supporting as a junior intelligence officer. What did you like about the intelligence field? Was it, was, did you really sink your teeth into it? Obviously it comes out in the books. So, you know, it must've been something that you really enjoyed. Yeah. I, you know, I, everything happens for a reason, I, I suppose. And as it turns out, I really enjoyed it. Um, it, it synced very much with my historical interests and in that, you know, I was, I was being paid and assigned to analyze, um, countries as well as target systems as well as societies etc so for someone like me who was intellectually curious anyway it was a really nice strong match um i also enjoy um analysis and gaming things out and the very first job you get as a pretty junior officer really is to be you know the guy supporting um a strike lead as the as the Navy is planning contingencies. And so that's mm -hmm. that's kind of how it works. At the National Command Authority level, there are several strike contingencies planned for, you know, as you might imagine, the things that are on policymakers' minds. And mm -hmm. as that gets distilled all the way through the giant bureaucracy of the Defense Department, it ends up landing on the shoulders of some Navy commander, you know, that is going to be on an aircraft carrier on station that at that time would have led the jets in and that would have been supported by, you know, standoff over the horizon weapons like tomahawks at the time, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. And so you end up being the the helper to this commander and he's just looking at you saying, well, what if we went in this way? Well, what if we went in that way? Go find out how this works. And eventually that mm -hmm. commander presents it to the Admiral. And so there you are as a, you know, what a dangerous 23 year old, um, He's got a massive responsibility mm -hmm. and, and contributing something. And so I, I always felt really, really good about that, that I've been very, very fortunate. And it stayed that way for me with increasing scope, you know, over the ensuing uh, seven or so years. Why did you decide to get out of it? Um, partly because of what we just talked about. It was the peacetime. Mm -hmm. um, the military was not a growth industry um mm -hmm. and so at the at the same time that the navy's you know you're seeing friends of yours pilots etc literally being laid off right they were retiring you know the a6 intruder for example so all my a6 buddies either got a coveted spot and you know f14s or f18s or pretty much got told to to get on their way and become a civilian and um, that didn't happen to me. I, I certainly had opportunities. But at the same time, you know, in 1998, um, the Internet was going great guns and mm -hmm. data communications and an entirely new sort of sort of you know framework for for business and opportunity. And one of the things that I've been doing was working with the NSA and the CIA, all these different national agencies as part of U.S. Pacific Command. And we were communicating over 
you know, what was not very familiar to people at the time, but effectively something called Intel Link, which was a um, an, an, an early precursor to what we saw as the internet. So I, I, I saw all this, I knew enough about it to be dangerous, but I, I thought, you know what, um, probably a good time to get into the tech industry. So that's, so that's what I did. Interesting. Uh, so you go from Navy to tech, but you also have this, is it sort of the side passion for writing? Yeah, well, when I was, uh, I, I never lost that passion for writing. I wanted to do that since I was a kid. Okay. Um, you know, uh, uh, it, it's pretty hard to become commercially successful as a writer. So you, you know, you get a, you get a real job where you risk everything, right? And um, <laughs> uh, I, I also had a, a, a strong belief that, you know, you can't really write anything unless you've had a lot of interesting um, experiences, mm -hmm. or at least some. And so... So even though that was a, a passion of mine, it, it was it was more or less a hobby, it, and it was something that I, interested me. And I think every every aspiring writer is also a voracious reader. And you know, I read in the genre, particularly Navy books. You know, my my favorites are all kind of rooted in the military. Um, but I I read and reread those you know all the time and thought a lot about the elements of what made them good. You know, things mm -hmm. like the plot and characterization and um, and suspense. But when I went into tech, you know, I really put that aside for quite a while because you know now you're having to learn an entire new career. And I didn't. I I probably revisited trying to write my first book around five years later after I left the Navy. But mm -hmm. it wasn't a bad time to do it because I'd learned a lot about technology and just people and business and life. Um, but I still had those Navy experiences to uh, to rely on. So you said as a kid you were writing. Was there some? Was it? It was always the military genre, the the thriller genre that sort of captured you as as a young person. Yeah, it was. Um, like I said, I was interested in in history and mm -hmm. in particular um, historical fiction. So you know, I think I picked up uh, Treasure Island, for example, and I think in eighth grade I tried to write something that felt a little bit like Treasure Island, where we're sort of a seafaring adventure. And from there mm -hmm. in high school, you know, I pick up um, the Hornblower series or um, the Patrick O'Brien novels, right? Mm -hmm. And read, you know, there's 10 Hornblowers and 19 Patrick O'Briens. Oh, I burned through all of those, right? And um, I just love the, the themes of duty and honor and sacrifice it moved me uh, emotionally, you know, at a tender age. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was always interested in writing about those kinds of things. And I know there are other genres, there's fantasy, there's horror. But to me, anyway, if you rooted something in, you know, history where the stakes are really big and where mm -hmm. you know, you either know that it happened because it's historical or you think that it could happen because it's sort of current events driven, that to me was always much more fascinating that there are people, you know, who are who are heroic and willing to 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 sacrifice everything to to you know solve some problem. That to me just mattered a lot. And so that that's always been my interest when it came to writing. So in that sense, at the beginning of the handler, the first book, what does the world look like? Uh, how do you, you know, obviously the world became a much more dangerous place in 9-11, you know, the last yeah. 20 years. Um, the handler came out after 9/11. Was there things that incorporate you incorporated in the war on terror into this, like the ideas of where our society is at? 
So, several. Um, the uh, I kind of had this uh, this this moment <laughs> when when the handler was was born. Um, what I, I was on my way to a conference um, in Las Vegas, the Consumer Electronics Show, and I I worked for Amazon, and it was um, uh, right before COVID, so January twenty twenty, and um, almost nobody remembers this because it's been overshadowed by events, even though it was only about three years ago. But but on I think it was January sixth, uh, right around that time period, um, we had we had effectively assassinated via a, a drone strike, um, General Soleimani, um, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the head of the Quds force, yep. um, we, in, in we caught him in Iraq and put a drone on his head. And there's mm -hmm. a long history of why, why we would do that. But that had caused a series of escalations on each side over the, over, you know, at the very end of 2019. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of those was that the, uh, Iranians shot a bunch of rockets over over the border at an American base. Mm -hmm. Well, then I think the Iranians were expecting a reprisal. So on January 6th, I think it was not the infamous January 6th, but the, the year before um, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a civilian airliner took off out of Tehran. It happened to be Ukrainian. That means a lot more now than it did then. But it was Ukrainian and it was on its way to Kiev. And then from Kiev, it was it was going to go to Canada. And so there were all these Iranian college kids on board this thing and a lot of Iranian college kids go to Canada for university and right after it took off um the IRGC Air Defense Command the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps all hopped up because they were expecting an American um attack shot it out of the sky so mm -hmm. perfectly innocent you know I, I forget I think it was a 767. I can't remember the exact airliner, but a perfectly innocent airliner filled with their own people and the RGC shoots it down. And I was in the, in the airport myself, you know, getting ready to fly to Vegas. And I really got to thinking about that as a, as a plot. Really, I didn't, don't think I started the plot, but I got to thinking like, well, what if there was somebody really important on that plane, you know, within, within the Iranian side. Mm -hmm. And so that, that developed into, a girl who was the daughter of uh, of an embedded American spy, and that that you know tragedy, that real world tragedy, is the prologue of the book. And okay. this girl being killed is the prologue of the handler, and that sets in, in that sets a, a chain of events into motion. So, I I really try to stay close to that that theme of trying to keep it realistic, um, also mm -hmm. personal. And largely about you know honor and sacrifice. So talk to me a bit about the main character of the handler and how you created you know that person you know the 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 the, the bits the the meat of that person. Yeah, yeah. The the um, the main character of the uh, this has now become the handler series. So mm -hmm. Dead Drop, which launches tomorrow, uh, May May twenty third, is the second in the series. But mm -hmm. in in the handler and the the opener, um, the the main character is a guy. I named um, John Dale. He's um, ex uh, CIA special activities, but he's he's since he's since retired, and he retired under circumstances that he didn't much appreciate, where he and the um, agency saw things differently. Um, and he's also divorced, and um, his ex wife was was and and still is in the CIA as as an executive. 
And so the the plot is that you know an embedded Iranian spy, um, whose daughter was killed on that on that airliner we talked about, uh, wants out, and he's wise to the world. He knows the old you know the old story about the way that spies get betrayed and manipulated by handlers. So he he's a, a smart guy and you know a nuclear physicist. He effectively turns the tables and blackmails the CIA and says. I want out. You need to get me out. And the only guy I trust to do that was my original handler, who's this guy, John Dale. And so the CIA has to get Meredith to get her ex-husband and basically be his handler to get back into service and and pull this guy out. And um, in so doing, I wanted to create heroes who had a lot of personal conflicts and who, who would who would sort of struggle with their own side. And so that also gave me a device to have a character, Meredith, um, who's on the inside of of the CIA. So you get Mm -hmm. a chance to see the bigger picture intelligence operations, but also to have a character who's, you know, on the ground, experiencing difficulties, using his own wits. And because he's rusty and the world has now changed with all kinds of technology, he screws up a lot and um mm-hmm. and but but still is determined to to get the job done. So the so the characters were born out of the need to have devices like that, and then they they took on a life of their own. Certainly there's probably no better conflict than having a divorced couple try to figure out how to <laughs> pretty, pretty much. And yeah. um and I and um I, I found in in reader feedback, et cetera, that they really liked that, right? So yeah. so in the um in the second book, uh it, it 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 continues, and I we won't you know do any big spoilers. But mm-hmm. one of the fun things about a couple like that is there's there's conflict, yes, but there's also some romantic tension. You know, will mm-hmm. they? There's off. There's times where you know one of them might want to be back together, the other one doesn't. There's mm-hmm. times where they might get back together, and so you know part of the fun is is keeping it guessing as to you know the the actual state of their relationship. As a former Navy intelligence officer. What what do you think sort of fascinates now? You know, Scuttlebutt listeners know that that I'm not a veteran, but you know, I actually I have a long history of being very excited by the thriller series. You know, thriller novels, I love them. Um, but what do you think fascinates society about that sort of world? About the you know the covert ops, the special ops, you know, CIA like sort of black ops, these things that like you know just clandestine operations. Like, what, what sort of scratches us? Like, you know, gets us excited by it. Uh, I think it has all the elements of um, of good fiction um, mm-hmm. because it, it, in what you just described, it's not a nameless, faceless, you know, army or force. It's a guy, right, or or, or a girl, and or a collection of them, small mm-hmm. enough that you can get to know them. So I think characterization is one thing. The other big part of uh, fiction is um, having stakes that that matter, right? Raising the stakes. And because these are people operating in that world with, you know, government resources and thousands of lives or a political situation at risk, you know, the stakes are kind of um, naturally big, right? Mm-hmm. So if you care about the characters, um, if the stakes are big, then, you know, some of the other elements are, um, for example, putting them, you can you can make a situation that's very plausible. So you yeah. can suspend disbelief because you know that, hey, this is something that could actually happen, right? And, mm-hmm. oh, I get this. This is a parallel to, you know, Russia invading Ukraine or or whatever. I mean, people can can have um, 
a, a reference point. And then, you know, I think the the other elements of suspense take care of themselves. These are people trying to do a difficult mission with, you know, lots of things arrayed against them. Mm -hmm. um, you can build in a ticking clock, right? So that if it's not done by a certain time, oh no, calamity ensues. So I, I, I really think it's tailor-made for, you know, a good story that captures the imagination and can keep you up at night. That that's why that's why I think. Did you have to do a lot of research? You know, you you want to base it as much in reality as possible. So you have to, you know, did you do a lot of interviews to sort of help help guide the truthfulness of the world? Yeah, I in 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 particular, I did for Dead Drop. Um, in in Dead Drop, the uh, there's a suave Iranian spy who is manipulating events effectively to turn Mossad against um, the CIA. And they're they're using Hezbollah in Lebanon as a as a proxy to do that. And it's why Mossad in the book ends up doing what they do because they see Hezbollah as an existential threat. Mm -hmm. So I I um I spent tons of time researching Lebanon and Hezbollah and Israel and the Mossad. Um I, I got to interview several you know, former IDF officers and, and even a few um, former Mossad officers and learned there's a lot out there that's open source intelligence uh, about their tactics, et cetera. And honestly, the IDF pro provides quite a bit of research um, ready-made because they, they, they have an active public relations effort to expose the threat that they see as Hezbollah, which they see as an Iranian proxy, and a government within a government in Lebanon. And they know, for example, like, hey, that's a weapons factory, but it's in the middle of this Shia neighborhood. And we can't do anything about it because we'll be labeled war criminals. Hey, world, why aren't we doing something about this? Right. And right. this is where the rockets go to get exported to, you know, other people to rain down on our neighborhoods. And so I once I really tuned into the Israeli, the way the Israelis um, look at the world, and then did lots of research on Mossad. Um, things, things, things tended to unfold from there. In terms of the handler, uh, take me through the process of you know you you get it written, you you know find an editor and a publisher, and what did it feel like to finally get that first book out there, and how and how much blood, sweat, and tears did you have to put into it to really get it to where you wanted it? Yeah, it, it was it was wild. And um, keep in mind, so like I started the handler the day that that airliner thing happened in the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas. And, <laughs> and uh, I thought, why am I doing this? You've failed at this three or four times, you know. And then I thought, well, you know, it'd be a fun diversion, be kind of a hobby, right? Literally. And um, I started writing it. I'm kind of an early riser. So I started writing it um, early in the morning. Um, before my wife woke up I and mean, the house is quiet and you can kind of just kind of sit there and and think about this. And before you knew it, I was like, I was kind of stumbling my way into a lot of the things I've I've learned since. Now I've written four books um, and uh, I was stumbling into, you know, characterization and, and plot development and things like that. But I was learning along the way. Well, after six months, um, I, 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 you know, it kind of passed my own test. And by then... I was at Amazon. I worked in Amazon Prime Video, mm -hmm. and um, I had met screenwriters and showrunners and directors, 
And I started to really compare my book to, um, you know, streaming television, a lot of it, a lot of it in this genre at the time. It, I happened to be working closely with the people who were producing um, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, which was an Amazon show. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up really analyzing the way that the show was built, comparing that to what I'd written. And then I edited um, the book to kind of match the way a screenplay would yeah. work. And that mm-hmm. turned out to have been a fortuitous thing because it just made it a lot snappier. You got rid of things you didn't, you didn't need, and I'm still, I'm still trying to hone this by the way, but that was, that was the thought process. And then once I felt like, Hey, this isn't bad. Um, I looked at a list of, uh, everybody knows you have to have an agent to get, to get published. Mm-hmm. Um, publishers don't, you know, don't really take guns. There might be one in a trillion that slips through, but, uh, when I looked at the agent world and I looked at, um, who, who represented all the thriller writers and it was guys like, we uh Don Bentley and um Mark Greeny and mm-hmm. uh Mark Cameron and even the um the legacy Tom Clancy books you know almost all these guys were were represented by by one agent um and so I contacted that agent among three or four others and two months later got a a thing from you know that agent's admin that said hey Sounds interesting. Sanus the manuscript. Sort of, you know, my pulse went to 200. And then <laughs> and then I didn't hear anything. Um, seven months went by. I literally oh. said, well, there you go. And so then I just kind of buried myself in work and and thought, yeah, you know, whatever. Not 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 a problem. I have other things that occupy my life. And then I got an email from the agent that said, Wow, I'm really, really enjoying this. I'm gonna call you in a day or two. I, seven months later. And um and then he did call and he and he and he said, hey, uh, uh, I, 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 th- th- this is this is going to work. And then mm-hmm. three days after that, basically had a, a deal with Penguin Random House. So, wow. yeah, it went from a, you know, kind of a dead stop to <laughs> to all very exciting and tied up, um, you know, in, in a long span, but with with micro dots of, of activity. So you decide at that point, did you decide on, on dead drop or was that something that sort of, uh, came about? Well, fortunately I had a multi-book deal. So I already knew this was a series going in and and what the editor, um, whose name is Tom Colgan at, at the Berkeley imprint for Penguin Random House, what, you know, he called me, um, you know, in that week that I was telling you about and his only real question, he was very complimentary, but his only real question was, can you can you turn this into a series? And mm-hmm. you know, because he's going, you're not a you're not a full time writer, you're not a professional writer. You've written one book that I like, but can you turn this into a series? And of course, my answer was, oh hell yeah, of course I can, right? Um, and so uh, because it was a multi book deal, I then um, mapped out you know where things could go from there, and I'd left mm-hmm. I'd left it open at the end of the handler so that it could be a series just in case, who knows? Right. Um, and so I I uh, the way that works then is you you write you think of a new plot and you write a summary for your editor and you send it to him and you go how about this and he says i like it or i don't or you know change change this to that and then you kind of agree on you know in general what the book's going to be about and then you barely talk for the next couple months as you go away and write the damn thing and he's you know they welcome you to to call up and and game out stuff but I wanted to prove that that I was a professional and and didn't 
need a lot of hand holding and and so mm-hmm. uh worked really really hard on it um and uh yeah that's the way that's how that's how it came together oh interesting um so you mentioned a couple of the other authors names like bentley greeny cameron um but you know something interesting about the thriller sort of genre i mean we have there there are lots you know from clancy uh, even characters specific we have uh, you know the jack ryan's jason bournes the bonds the you know, ethan hunts mitch rap you know vince Flan- you know there's a lot of names there's a lot of characters that have carried the torch of the thriller genre and for someone like myself who you know i've read some of these i enjoy them a lot how do you make your voice distinct in in that field and say like i'm going to add to this and create something new yeah, um, I don't think that I necessarily approached all this with that in mind. Mm-hmm. However, the thing that my agent and my editor saw was that, hey, there is something distinct here. And, mm-hmm. you know, paraphrasing, I think what what they would say is these are character driven espionage dramas, um, but which is a little bit more like, say, John Le Carre, mm-hmm. um, but they also are in a framework with a military background that feels a lot in a big, you know, geopolitical plot that feels a lot more like Tom Clancy. And because you've got one person within the walls of the CIA, while you've got another one on the ground, the guy on the ground can have, you know, the action scenes reminiscent of the gray man. And Mm so what my editor told me subsequently was that what what he really appreciates, he said he gets submissions all the time that are, you know, trying guys trying to be a better gray man, you know, um, or a better uh, Mitch Rapp. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, what 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 is unique about yours is that it comes with this analytical side that feels real because of your experience. And so mm-hmm. um, that's that's how um, that's my that's my niche. Uh, and um, um, I will uh, I will continue to stay in it as long as uh, people seem to like it. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I think about it. Well, that was going to be definitely one of my questions because it, it's something that I find interesting that non-veterans have gone on to written write in in this field. And do you feel that yourself as as a veteran, especially of uh, of naval intelligence, was you know you're very you know you had a very particular set of skills <laughs> yeah. to be able to, you know, to bring that to light. And, and did you happen to notice as you were writing the handler that some of your own experiences might like be coming out in the pages? Well, well, certainly um, one of the jobs I had um, in the na- late later, it was really the last job I had was with, it used to be called U.S. Pacific Command. Now it's U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. And that's the the joint military organization that, runs the entire you know pacific theater right so Mm -hmm. it's usually an admiral based in pearl harbor and that admiral uh is has the operational commander for the air force the navy the army everybody right Mm -hmm. in that in that theater so most people are familiar with u.s centcom right well you know this is u.s pacific command Mm -hmm. and because it's more maritime it's it's much more naval in in nature and um my my last job there as an intelligence officer was to write war games, and mm-hmm. I didn't just you know I had a team, but um, I didn't just write the war game. I wrote the scenario for approval by the admiral. I then um, wrote out you know here's how everything is going to unfold, and this is why it will 
challenge the various military commands. Um, and then I might write about, you know, here's the actual messages that are going to get written and disseminated. And I'd have my team do a lot of those. But if you think about this, this is, it's a tailor-made, right, <laughs> to, to become to become a book plot later. And I spent um, probably more time than I needed to trying to make them, oh, I, you know, entertaining in a way. Certainly, that's not a word that you use, you know, in, in, in that sort of scenario, but mm -hmm. um, to make them super believable. And um, to make them believe, you know, and this is everything. This isn't always, hey, you know, the Chinese invaded. This is this is stuff like um, a non-combatant evacuation order or, a, a you know, a NEO mm -hmm. when um, maybe there's been a tsunami in Bangladesh and, you know, there's hundreds of Americans scattered throughout the country and the State Department wants to go get them. Right. Mm -hmm. Or there's a coup in Thailand and. There's all these Americans in Bangkok that have to get out of there. How will we do that? You know, mm -hmm. or there's a cholera outbreak in Timor. What, 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 what? So, I mean, it was everything under the sun. And so when you ask, like, did, did I mind that stuff? Oh, you bet I did. Mostly I mind it not so much for the content, but the framework of the way things worked and the yeah. framework of the way that the various intelligence agencies communicated with each other how they interfaced with the military, the frustrations in those mm -hmm. bureaucracies of individual people and the value of, of actual relationships. And then later, you know, after leaving the Navy and a long tech career, you know, my last job at Amazon, um, I did business in 40 countries with 140 telecommunications providers, you know, run, on a big team. And so I, I got to, I got to travel all over the place, right? And so mm -hmm. that helped even fill in some of the gaps I'd thought about before. Well, believe me, lots of those things make it into the, in the way to it make it into both books because you've been to these places, you've seen these things, and you know how the locals do stuff, all that, all that kind of stuff. So hopefully, provides a lot, a lot of flavor. That's sort of the big widescreen view of like this is our world and how it's all the rules sort of exist within this. Let's cut it down real specific to the characterization. You know, you talked about you have a you know divorce couple that the interplay between them. Um, did you find it difficult to to get that sort of minute detail into a person's character of John and and what makes him tick and why, yeah, why he's not good at this I, one thing? And somebody, uh, I I heard somebody say one time that the secret to good writing is rewriting. <laughs> and uh, I think that that's true. Um, certainly in a, in a first book in a series, you don't know your characters as well as you think you do. Mm. And when, when you're, you know, you kind of go all the way through it and you lay out, you write the entire book and you lay out everything that happens, but the characters don't come alive until you populate them with, you know, little petty things that you know where they annoy each other or habits they have or nuances such that by the you know by the time you're halfway through a book a reader should be able to think i i know exactly how this guy's going to react uh oh he's going to lose his mind oh there he goes again you know mm -hmm. we all have fictional characters that we've admired who we think we know them, right we think we know their personalities and um i i think um, for me, I started with a template of what I thought that would be like, like, hey, she's ambitious. He has a hard time following the rules. No wonder their marriage didn't work out, that that kind of a thing. 
But it isn't until you put them in situations that you start to invent, well, you know, what if he's like this, right? And so a lot of times it isn't until the end of the book that you really understand them. And then you go and you rewrite and you fix all that and you make it consistent. Um, mm -hmm. You make it consistent throughout. And I think, I think you could spend, you know, endless time doing that. The, the trick is readers don't have a lot of patience, particularly in this genre. Mm -hmm. um, they need to get to stuff um, quickly. And so there needs to be an economy of words. You can't, you know, go on mm -hmm. for five pages you know, about how the guy is a Steelers fan. It's just like, got it. He's a Steelers fan. Move on, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so revealing those traits consistently and in a way that has a light touch throughout, I think is, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the larger challenges, more, more art than science. One thing that's seemed, I've seemed to be picking up on is that from your career, your career in the Navy, uh, there was an assessment of risk. Like, you know, and then going into like your, your career afterwards with Amazon, is that something that's sort of, you know, part of John's character, this, he, he like assesses risk very well? Uh, I would say that, um, that he and his wife might assess risk similarly. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to play with was how you react to that risk, because mm -hmm. I think we can all assess, you know, if you're an analytical person, you can step back and assess risk and say, hey, there's a you know, 30% chance this will happen and a 70% chance that'll happen. Mm -hmm. But then the question is how risk averse are you? You know, mm -hmm. are you willing to accept the 30 or are you only willing to, you know, accept the 70? And um, what the primary difference in the characters is their reaction mm -hmm. to, to, to the risk. That, that's what I'd say. Interesting. Who would you say is, you know, other than John, obviously the character that you developed and, and, uh, and, and Meredith, uh, who would you say was your favorite character growing up that you really, you know, was it, was it Jack Ryan? Was it, you know, that sort of character that you sort of gravitated towards? Uh, I, um, yes, it was. Uh, well, I mentioned, I mentioned in, you know, high school, I, I was really, it really probably started with, you know, Horatio Hornblower and mm -hmm. um, Jack Aubrey, you know, and, and for any geeks that are listening, they'll know, they'll know who those, who those guys are in more, um, Contemporary fiction. I liked um, Smiley in the Le Carre series because of the way he seemed like an everyman, yet was um, ultimately intellectually superior. I liked that a lot. Um, eventually, I thought I thought Mitch Rapp um, was pretty cool mm -hmm. uh, uh, because he was so um, physically physically gifted and you know uh, had had such bravery. Um, I thought I thought. I thought Jack Ryan um, was the, the thing I liked about Jack Ryan was that aspect of being a reluctant hero, mm -hmm. somebody who's capable and doesn't have to do this, but is going to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, so th th those are a couple that stick out to me. Is you think those sort of qualities are what make, I would say a, a good action hero, but that's sort of like, you know, the one man versus everybody, the one man that's going to get it done. Is, is those are the qualities that you kind of find? it gets back to that honor and sacrifice and yeah. the it, if if a if a reader is going to root for somebody they have to first understand well why why does this guy have to do it anyway right mm -hmm. and that gets to your one man point and that you need to be careful with that it can't be you know an eye roll because it's so trite you know the old movie trailer one man right um and so it has to be there has to be a plausible reason as to why 
this this person is in the unique position that they have to to do something. So in the handler, for example, there was a personal relationship between the embedded um, CIA or uh, Iranian spy and uh, and and John Dale, right? That mm -hmm. that was my device there. But I think once that's established plausibly, then yes, it's a romantic notion that hey, this person's got to do this. Well, you've instantly set up a challenge. There's going to be all these people arrayed against him. Mm -hmm. He's going to have to use his wits to get through it. Um, right. And if he does, he's he's heroic. And he at any point, he could probably you know quit and go home, but he's not going to. He's going to do the right thing. And you want to give him those choices along the way. For our writing audience, uh, have you ever hit a point of sort of writer's block? And how did you navigate that? I, I have, um, and I do. Uh, Generally, there's a you you kind of have to have a, a belief in yourself and a confidence that you are going to get through it, mm -hmm. and you and you have to relax a little bit. Um, the way that I almost always get through it is either through a conversation with someone else when you know you're you're voicing it out loud and you realize that hey, why have I painted myself? You know, why am I putting myself in this box? I control this world. I could just make something else happen, right? And for some reason that doesn't always occur to you. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that that happens a lot, um, frankly, is I don't read I don't read fiction when I'm writing fiction. I read I read nonfiction, mm -hmm. um, either because I'm researching something or just to relax. And I like I like historical biographies uh, quite a bit because it is that aspect of one person, you're learning a lot about them. They had these huge struggles and even though they're like iconic and famous now, hey, you find out they were a real person and and mm -hmm. and you know look had had significant challenges. And in so doing, I often find parallels and think, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I I could do that. I didn't. I never thought of it that way. What if I bent something? So usually it doesn't last more than um, about about two days, uh, and then I'm kind of over it. But I mm -hmm. also do recognize that once you hit it it's kind of important to to stop and reassess because if you keep going too long you're just going to write a bunch of you're just going to kind of waste your time you yeah. you sort of know when you when you're up against something like i better figure that out or the rest of this is a house of cards mm -hmm. uh and so and so that's what i try to do so we talked a lot about the hander i, I you know I, i'm a type of person who likes to know where the story starts how it all you know so the genesis of things where they're coming from how we're how they're built what's the house look like you know um, but lead me into as much as you can of Dead Drop. What's our what's the scenario? And with, you know, of course, with, without doing any spoilers here, like you know, what can readers look to expect as the continued story of John and Meredith? Yeah. So the in the prologue, uh, effectively, and that that is excerpted by the way at the end of the handler. In case anybody has the handler, um, at least in the paperback edition. Uh, in the prologue, the Israelis detect a. Um, a, a missile launch coming out of Lebanon, out of Hezbollah territory, and they think it's odd. It, it goes into the sea and there's no explosion. So they send a submarine out to recover the missile. And when they do so, they find out that, hey, uh, it has a dummy warhead, but that dummy warhead has, you know, interesting characteristics. And this missile itself has been heavily modified. It was an old Soviet SA-5, uh, uh, which there's lots of in in uh, Lebanon um, that come through Syria, back to my naval intelligence days. And they've modified this, this SA-5 
to be able to perform like a poor man's hypersonic missile effectively. Mm -hmm. So between the modifications to the wing and the body and the materials and the dummy warhead, the Israelis become very, very concerned that the uh, that Hezbollah is planning something and simply awaiting a warhead, but planning something very destructive against Israel. Meanwhile, the U.S. is about to sign a new nuclear deal with Iran, and this is in a post-Iranian breakout world. So Iran already has nuclear um, capability, and the debate in the in the American on the American side is, you know, how do we contain it? Right? Mm -hmm. There's no longer a world where we can prevent it. So how do we contain it? And so it opens up a conflict between the Israeli point of view which is very much a, this is a real world threat. Look at this missile we found. And the American point of view that says, you really can't prove that. It could have been any number of things and we're on the verge of a deal here. Well, in the midst of all of that, um, that John and Meredith have a, uh, or Meredith really, has a spy that she's turned, who's from the Quds Force, and she's been trying to figure out a way to um, to reinsert him. So he's been on the CIA side um, in a safe house. The Israelis kind of figure out that, hey, the Americans have this guy and they're not sharing the intelligence, which makes us all the more wary of the American political point of view. And this is an existential threat to us. And so they they do something. Let's just say they do something about, about that. And that pits that pits the CIA against um, Mossad with differing worldviews. And of course, by the time the, the arc wrap, wraps up, that is sort of, that, that, that twists around um, quite a bit in our, our heroes. I won't, I won't say whether they prevail or not, but you can probably guess. Awesome. Uh, how many are now planned in this series? Now you have sort of the book deal. How far do you see the, the story going? How far have you planned out? Yeah, I have a, well, I, I wrote the, the third book uh, I wrapped that up about a month ago. And for people who don't know, there's quite a lag in um, traditional publishing. So mm -hmm. that'll be due to my editor, you know, here in a couple of weeks. And then it won't see the light of day for another year. right? Um, and I had a lot of fun um, writing that one in a completely new context with uh, new, new adversaries. Um, I, I sort of see this as, a minimum, a minimum of probably five books. So there's probably two more after that. In in the meantime, because I finished the the third one, I'm I'm um, about two thirds of the way through a, a standalone uh, thriller now, um, without without these characters. That that gets a little bit more back into my military background. That's in its own universe, its own thing. I'm sorry. That's that book is in its own universe, its own thing, as standalone. It it, it is, and um, it is. Uh, if you remember the book Winds of War, it's it's mm -hmm. a little bit like that, where it's character driven, it's centered around uh, a family, but also um, a great a great chain of events in which they are they they are are caught up, and so it helps illustrate that theme, I think, or dramatize that theme of sacrifice through one particular American naval family. Excellent. Um, well, MP, uh, this has been awesome. I, I loved The Handler. I'm loving Dead Drop. Uh, I would you know, highly recommend this to our listeners to go out and check this out. Is there a best place for them to uh, find and purchase your books? Uh, well, it, it's available 
pretty much anywhere you buy books. Um, it's uh, uh, Handler is in uh, paperback as of about a month ago. And of course, there's also ebook and audiobook and hardbacks, you know, wherever, wherever you want to go. Um, and Dead Drop arrives on bookshelves tomorrow, which is very exciting, the 23rd mm -hmm. of May. So again, that'll be available everywhere you buy books. It, it'll also be in um, Audible and uh, ebook too. Exciting. And I may I ask, do you know who you got to read the audiobook? I always seem to find enjoyment out of audiobooks, yes. but it's difficult to find a good reader. Yeah, it's an actor. Um, he's been in lots of shows, a, a character actor named um, John Lindstrom. Mm -hmm. Our paths happened to cross sort of because he was he was in the series Bosch on uh, Amazon mm -hmm. Prime Video. And um, I thought he did such a good job with The Handler. Honestly, I remember it was a new experience for me. I was out for a walk and you know, the book launched and I hadn't heard it. I hadn't heard it before launch day and I'm walking along, listen to this. And I, I, I was like, did I write this right? It was <laughs> really, really interesting to hear someone else reading it in a dramatic way. And um, I liked it so much that they asked me when dead drop was, was under production. Who, do you have a particular person you want to to do this? And I said, yeah, I want John Lindstrom again because I thought he nailed it. And um, that so he and I have have since had um, a, a direct dialogue. But uh, yeah, that's that's how that came together. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you again, MP, for joining us on the Scuttlebutt. Uh, to our audience, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And make sure you check out both The Handler and Dead Drop. Uh, whenever this episode drops, the book, book will have been out for about a week, so you can go get it wherever books are sold. Oh, wait, uh, wait, Sean. I, yeah. I just remembered I do have it here. So there, oh, there you excellent. go. <laughs> I was lucky and went through your publicist and I was able to get a, a, an advanced copy. So excellent. I'm, I'm cherishing glad, I'm glad this. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Very exciting. Good stuff. Uh, all the best to you. I, you know, and, and I wish you luck with Dead Drop and, and the upcoming full series here. Um, I hope to have you back on the Scuttlebutt too, whenever you know you release uh, more parts of, of the Handler series. Always happy to be on the Scuttlebutt. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, they have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured Tobacco Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, it was one, two wonderful conversations. So I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco Free Adagio Health, for your support.